The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Software giant Oracle is protesting to the U.S. government over a massive defense cloud computing contract it fears may go to rival Amazon. Does Oracle have a case? And as the trade war tensions rise, is it time for Airbnb to think about exiting China? Finally, should Elon Musk be worried about a Chinese Tesla lookalike listing in New York? These are the questions we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Robin Mack, and I'm sitting here in Hong Kong chatting with my colleagues Pete Sweeney, Sharon Lam, and Katrina Hamlin. I'll start with Pete. Pete, last week you wrote a really interesting piece about Oracle filing a formal protest against the Department of Defense's decision to award a $10 billion cloud contract to a single bidder. Its co-CEO, Safra Katz, has also said that the entire process seems designed to benefit rival Amazon Web Services, or AWS. Pete, what's behind this complaint, and does Oracle have a case? Just a little bit of background first. The contract we're talking about is a, is a very big deal for the industry right now. It's a $10 billion, potentially $10 billion contract to migrate a bunch of sensitive military data onto private cloud servers. It's called the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Program. Uh, AKA Jedi, um, and it's very sexy stuff. You're going to have, you know, transmission from battlefront data onto these these servers, and there's going to be artificial intelligence and all this cool stuff. Um, that said, it's also controversial. Um, the idea of moving all this data onto private services is going to come at the expense of other agencies that are currently handling it, like the Defense Intelligence Systems Agency. Um, there's a bunch of like private contractors, network uh, integrators all this industry that, that has been working for the federal government before is facing, you know, the loss of jobs or, or revenue. And so then there's... Who, so who's actually bidding for this contract now? Well, the, we're not quite clear yet. The The concern that, that Oracle has is that there's really only one company that's positioned to bid for this, and that is Amazon. What the Oracle's protest to the government accountability offices, specifically about one clause in the contract, which stipulates that it's just going to be a single provider. So this winner takes all on this Okay. Thing. And that's usually quite unusual. It is unusual. Well, government yeah, contracts I mean, the, and, and it's, it's begged a lot of questions like the Armed Services Committee and, and when the draft defense budget, you know, expressed concerns that the, about security, we're reliant on a single company, you know, we're going to standardize on this. And, and so there's that. And then obviously for competitors, there's the business risk of Amazon walking away with this huge contract all by itself. Right. Right. So Oracle seems like it does have some sort of case against this. Well, they definitely have a case to worry about it. I mean, the question is, like, did, is, is this to Amazon's fault or Amazon's credit? I mean, the, this company has already signed up the CIA, the SEC. Um, they've got NASA. They've got the Air Force. I mean, like Amazon has done really, really well signing up federal agencies. That's really interesting, Pete. So in your piece, you also pointed out that Amazon has these ties to the government, um, additionally, they have two of uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis' senior advisors used to be at a consultancy that worked for AWS on a specific, you know, defense procurement preparation. Right. So a lot is of this people... just, you know, very good lobbying from AWS? And doesn't this stuff happen all the time in D.C.? Yeah, I, I think this story is still developing. A lot of people have kind of taken note of, of you know, the fact that um, senior advisor Sally Donnelly who worked directly with Mattis, um, came aboard with him when he became Secretary of Defense and was charged with coordinating um, strategic engagements, in quotes, um, with public and private enterprises, actually had just been running um, this, this company called SBD Advisors, which was contracting with 
AWS, you know, helping them, advise them on defense procurement. She, she had come from the Department of Defense before. She'd been a military bureaucrat. She'd worked with Mattis before. And she'd hired all these very fancy uh, former spies and generals and stuff like that to do consulting services. And this is how you do it in, in Washington, right? You've got a great Rolodex. Companies want to do business with the government. They come and hire you. She went straight in with Mattis. And also, she brought along her managing director, Anthony DiMartino. And he became uh, Mattis's deputy chief of staff. And the main thing that people focus on is during their tenure, Mattis went and made this highly public visit uh, to Jeff Bezos and their photographed strolling around. And then after that comes out this Jedi contract that, that is, is, in theory, Amazon is well positioned to win. So people have made a lot of hay out of this. Now, I just should say this right now. There have been no allegations of anything illegal. The Government Ethics Committee cleared both of these people before before they joined DOD. Right, so they this is both all re- they've both left now. This is all public, yes. right? They they all disclosed this, but I mean, like optically, a lot of people have f- focused on this as like when they look at the contract, the single source contract, that it looks like only Amazon, like where Amazon is just way in ahead in terms of some of the 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 clauses in it. Okay, and I guess if Amazon really does win, then what does this mean for Amazon's investors? And also, what does this mean for its other cloud rivals like Oracle, IBM, and Microsoft? I should say first that the main, the main thing here is that Amazon is actually, whatever they did lobbying-wise, um, in terms of like being clever, understanding how the DoD works, there's no question that they've developed a really robust cloud solution targeting the federal sector. Um, you know, and as a result, they have all these security clearances already in place. So one of the clauses in this contract says that you know you have to... You have 270 days to build out a top-secret region or top-secret service um, to provide the government. Now, Amazon is the only provider that already has this. Okay, They're ahead of everybody else just on that front. There's all these other technical things we can point to, but that's the big one. Like, It's going to be a huge jam for Microsoft or IBM or any of these people to build something like that that fast. You have to get the people to go through clearance. You have to get the hardware, all this stuff. So the worry is that what Amazon is going to be able to do is first they get the, the Pentagon, you know, and then after that, it's going to be easier for other federal agencies like, say, Veterans Affairs to just be like, oh, well, DOD is already on Amazon. Let's just standardize on that. It'll be easier. And then next thing you know, um, Amazon Web Services is to the government what Microsoft is to kind of like its desktop computers, where it has this basically wins this format war. And then that also helps it does business with other governments because Jedi also contemplates interaction with foreign governments, you know, in terms of defense cooperation, what might mean that overseas, there's people who are also going to start standardizing on AWS for this sort of thing. So whatever the rights and wrongs are of, of this conflict, certainly Oracle and the competitors have a lot to worry about if Amazon walks away with this. And it sounds like this is great for Amazon investors as well. Then, If they get to keep it. I mean, just one caveat, Oracle has already protested one award that was made to an Amazon partner called ReenCloud, which was specifically migrating some military data over to private servers. They went to GAO and complained, and the GAO decided to uphold Oracle's complaint. So sir, <laughs> I would not take it for granted that Amazon's going to win. Um, certainly, they've got a lot of enemies. Uh, Jeff Bezos does not get along particularly well with President Trump. Um, so I think there's still plenty of risk. But yeah, if Amazon wins this, they're going to win big. All right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Robin. Now I'm going to turn to Sharon. Sharon, you've been looking at flat-sharing startups in the Chinese markets, and in particular Airbnb. Um, So many Western tech companies have struggled in China, and in the context of a trade war uh, between the U.S. and China, it looks like a lot of U.S. companies in the country could get squeezed by the government. 
In Airbnb's case, um, the company is playing catch-up with two domestic rivals, Tujia and Xiaoju. Um, so is it time for Airbnb to cut and run? Um, yeah, so you're right to point out that Airbnb is fighting against um, some entrenched domestic players. So to what you already pointed out, um, Tujia and Xiaoju are more or less Airbnb replicas. Um, Tujia, which has about 1 million listings, controls about... 41% of the market, and Xiaoju controls about 23% of the market. Airbnb, by comparison, only has about 87 So one indicator that competition is heating up is that they've been rapidly losing market share, at least in 2017. But I don't think that Airbnb should just um, cut and run necessarily. I mean, it's it's doing well in other nearby markets. Um, so in Asia-Pacific, it kind of generated um, a retail value RSP, which is a common metric in the tourism industry of $1.8 billion. It has a pretty strong business proposition, um, and they also can bank on so-called network effects or the idea that a lot of um, Chinese outbound travelers, um, a majority of which are millennials, will actually come back to China as hosts. Um, and obviously, the last thing is you can't really discount the fact that Airbnb is also massive compared to its competitors. So it has like a $31 billion valuation. So who are the competitors? I mean, are they backed by other big players as well or...? Can you talk a bit about Tujia and Xiaoju and how is it because they got there first in the Chinese market? How, how have they built such a lead um, mm. over Airbnb? Yeah, so uh, Tujia is is um, much smaller, and but in China it's, it's one of the biggest. It is the biggest, actually. Um, and it raised about $300 million on top of what it originally had lacked October um, at about a $1.5 billion valuation. And it's led by... And that funding round was led by C-Trip, which is China's largest um, online travel agency. Um, and it also snapped up Mai, which is a smaller home sharing space. And Xiaoju, on the other hand, has a partnership with Alibaba's travel brand, Fliggy. So they are kind of backed by heavyweights in that sense. Okay, so it looks like Airbnb does face some pretty stiff competition yeah. if they want to catch up. Okay, and sort of um, you talked about Uber as an example here. So Uber sold out of China completely, um, and they ex exchanged, um, you know, their Chinese operations uh, for a stake in uh, rival Didi. Um, and at that time, the Uber China, um, they were burning through billions of dollars in subsidies. Is Airbnb, is it a fair comparison? And should Airbnb sort of follow what Uber did mm -hmm. and just sort of sell their Chinese operations and just leave the market completely? Right. So, so as you pointed out, Uber sold its entire China operations in return for a one, near one-fifth stake in Didi. And, and some would argue that's kind of um, throwing in the towel or exiting the market. Um, I wouldn't say that Airbnb is in a similar boat. Um, because they're private, they don't disclose financials. Um, but Tech News uh, website, the information did report that Airbnb is supposed to lose around $20 million from its China operations this year, which is a figure that it's comfortable with. So it's not burning cash at a rate that's anywhere near Uber back in 2016. But I think what's interesting is that it could potentially learn from Uber, or more specifically, kind of um, its mistakes. Okay, and it doesn't seem like apartment sharing is, you know, that cash burning an industry as ride hailing, for example, then. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. that's, that's right. Okay, and it also seems that, you know, there were some reports that Airbnb was going to merge with Tuzia uh, last year mm -hmm. um, and that Airbnb broke off those talks. Um, can you talk a bit about, you know, what happened or what, you know, is, is there something that can change your mind at this point now? 
Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, uh, Bloomberg reported that Airbnb broke off merger talks in, in January last year. I think the terms are a bit fuzzy, but it would have effectively given Airbnb um, maybe around uh, 80% of its China business. But ultimately, um, at the last minute, Airbnb broke these talks off. Um, and since then, we've seen a lot of trade tensions escalate. There's been a lot of regulatory risk that is more difficult to price in. So um, countries like Singapore, Thailand, Myanmar have enacted more kind of stringent regulations, if not completely outright banned short-term rentals. And in China, it's still a largely gray area. So the regulator could suddenly kind of flip the switch and no longer support policies. And a trade war motivated by a boycott against um, U.S. companies could also kind of jeopardize its position in China. Okay, so it seems like, I guess, the regulatory landscape, you know, has sort of shifted quite dramatically recently. And then you also mentioned C-Trip, which is, um, you know, China's largest online travel agency. There's also a backer of Tuzia. So how how would they potentially play a role in this if Tuzia and Airbnb sort of revive these talks? I mean, does it make sense for Airbnb to get closer with C-Trip in China? Yeah, so I think I mentioned earlier, there's been kind of a lot of M&A in this front, and Airbnb might be better positioned than it is now if it finds kind of a local alliance uh, to strike. Um, and obviously, if they partner with C-Trip, one thing they could tap into is into peripheral services like flights, for instance. Um, but more importantly, I think it is just that having an ally that is homegrown and Chinese could um, kind of help as competition intensifies and others like Tencent-backed Meituan Dianping also kind of pile into the home-sharing space. Okay, thanks so much, Sharon. Thanks, Robin. Chinese electric vehicle maker NIO has filed for a $1.8 billion U.S. IPO. Katrina, NIO is often referred to as China's answer to Tesla. And I know you've been looking at, you know, this company and its filings and some of its financials. So is that a fair assessment of the company? Well, there are definitely some similarities. Um, They're both electric vehicle makers, as you said. Uh, They're both kind of aiming for the the high end of the market. Uh, And I think they both have some promising technology. Uh, Neo, for example, uh, has an electric racing car, which has broken some some impressive speed records. And um, they're also um, both... They both still have a lot to prove. So NEO isn't yet mass manufacturing its vehicles. It's delivered less than 500 vehicles. Um, and Tesla, of course, is um, in a similar situation. OK, so what I mean, so what sets it apart from Tesla then? Uh, there's a few very important differences. First of all, this is a Chinese company and it's after the Chinese market. And that's significant because at the moment, Um, China makes up about half of the world's annual sales in electric vehicles and they're extremely keen to push that further. Uh, The government wants to see something like 7 million electric vehicle sales uh, by 2025. Okay, so it seems like the overall Chinese market um, is potentially uh, will be a big boost uh, for this company then. Hopefully, yeah. that said, there's another important difference uh, between Tesla and Neo that is um, a little bit less positive. Um, when Tesla went public, uh, it was raising just over $200 million. Uh, as far as we know, um, Neo is looking to raise something like $1.8 billion. They have said that's an estimate, but you know, obviously the number's a lot bigger. At the same time, uh, they have yet to make a profit. 
And their net loss in the first half of this year was about half a billion dollars, which is 10 times Tesla's net loss uh, for the whole year before it went public. Okay, so it looks like the financial situation in both companies are actually quite different then. So what, I mean, what is the business model of NIO? I mean, I know they make cars and they sell them, um, but it looks like they're losing money at a much faster rate as well. Can you explain a bit about that? Yes, NIO's business model is a little bit different and it's kind of untested. They're a little bit more like a tech company and less like a car company. They think of their model a little bit like uh, the way Apple thinks of its smartphones. The idea is once you have a Neo car, you're sucked into this network of online services uh, and offline services too that that make your life as a driver um, very convenient, um, more enjoyable. And um, the hope is that um, that will mean it's it's much harder for customers to to leave their ecosystem. So what, what kind of services are these then? Um, it's things like e-commerce. So if you order something online, you might be able to have the delivery straight to your vehicle. It's also uh, kind of nitty gritty details of car ownership, like um, maintenance and um, charging in the case of electric vehicles. They want to do everything they can to make that part of your life much uh, simpler and easier. And so do they have charging networks and stations across China or how, how does that work? They do. They're getting some charging uh, systems in place. They also have what they call uh, a Neo Clubhouse, which is somewhere where you can, I think, have your car charged, but also just hang out with other Neo users. Um, all of which sounds very nice, but it could potentially be quite expensive. If you think about uh, property prices in China and also the cost of labor rising, um, it, it could cost quite a lot to deliver this to their customers. Right, because they have to build the cars, they have to sell them, and then they have to build these ha- clubhouses for you know their charging stations and, and whatnot. So it seems like they do have more costs. Than... I think I think there's a lot in the business model that, that could suggest that. Um, there's, a, there's one other thing that's quite interesting about this, this tech business model, um, if you like. Their, uh, their corporate structure actually uses the, the variable interest entities, the, the, the same kind of structure that um, Alibaba and others use. Um, and that could come with, with certain risks. We don't know how well that structure is going to endure in, in the, the distant future. So um, all of these things make it a, a little bit uh, more interesting than Tesla, in, in a way. Yes, and certainly more riskier. I think that's possible, yes. (laughs) Thanks, Katrina. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Pete, Sharon, and Katrina for joining us. Kudos also to our producer, Freddie Joyner, and our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. Please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. 